You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, kindergartners, first graders, you guys are welcome to head off to Bible study with Miss Madison and Miss Brittany over there in the corner. And as you might have guessed, our sound system decided to blow up uh, during worship this morning. Uh, but of course, we're not going to let that hinder us from worshiping the Lord. Apparently, our, our soundboard just died. So uh, we're not sure what's going on, but we're going to do this the old-fashioned way uh, of going without amplification. And it's a uh, Hard to believe, you know, Charles Spurgeon used to be able to preach to several thousand without amplification, so I, I should be able to handle a hundred okay, uh, so you can pray for me. Uh, so I'll try to speak loudly to make sure everybody can hear, uh, but we are going to continue our study through the book of Leviticus. So we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 24, and again, if this is your first time here with us this morning, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. We're glad you, you came to worship on such a wonderful Sunday where everything went wrong, but, but we're glad you're here nonetheless and uh, that you're visiting with us. And so we have been working chapter by chapter through the book of Leviticus. And so we find ourselves coming to the conclusion of that book, and we are going to read chapter 24 together. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in and see what God has to teach us from his word this morning. So Leviticus chapter 24 starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomith, a daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. 
all the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. Lord, for your reminder this morning that what we need to worship you is your spirit and your people gathered and your word open. Father, as we think about all the technology and other epiphanies, Lord, that you've blessed us with in this modern age, Lord, we remind ourselves how ultimately how unnecessary they really are. Lord, that not even a, a broken sound system can hinder your people from worship. So, Father, we pray that you would do what you would promise that you would do through the preaching of your word, or that as your word is heralded, that your church would be built up, that the lost would be saved, and, Lord, that Christ would be glorified. And so, Father, that is our prayer this morning as we open up your word together from Leviticus 24. Teach us and instruct us, O Lord, and show us what it means to live before your presence. And it's in God's name, the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we live in a very unusual age. Speaking of technology, we live before it's all-seeing eye in a lot of ways. And it's really evaporated any sense that we might have of privacy. Now, multi-million dollar companies engineers ways to, to trace you, to track you, and to build a profile of your life as a consumer. So tech giants, social networks, retailers, they they all milk every dollar they can out of our wallets by targeting us with specific ads. So have you ever ever had this experience before? You go on, on Google and you search, you know, what's the best toothpaste I could buy? So you go and you start doing some research on the best toothpaste for your mouth, And then before long, you're on Facebook, and then you find that Facebook starts sending you ads about toothpaste. They they are tracking us. They're following us, targeting us so that we can, so they can sell to us. So so Target, in many ways, is a, a pioneer of this sort of big retail data. And Target tracks every customer based off of their purchase, as most retail stores do now. And they begin to build profiles based off of their customers' lives, and they got quite effective at observing retail habits of their customers and predicting what sort of ads would best reach them at any particular time in their life. So famously, Target could predict when a woman was pregnant, often before the woman herself realized that she was pregnant, so that they could send coupons for diapers and formula as some sort of preemptive marketing strategy. Now, those things make us a little eerie, don't they? These big companies... That big brother sort of vibes, but it reminds us that 
that our privacy is often much thinner in this internet age than we would care to admit. So, of course, politicians and tech giants, they, they wrestle with the implications of these privacy issues that are dominating our world today. But, but this reminds us that even before the technology age, the secret part of our lives are not all that secret. That you can go off the grid. You can smash your cell phone. You can cut up every credit card you have and just use cash. You could boycott every social network. And yet, every human being lives under the eye of a God who sees all, who knows all. Not just our actions, but actually our, our minds, our innermost thoughts. God sees and we know we live before his presence. So that leads us with a really important question. How ought we, uh, you and I, how ought we to live before the presence of God? That's one of the big questions that dominates the second half of Leviticus. How do we live before our God? So if God rescues us and he cleanses us, to borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? Now, the Puritans used a phrase called a life lived unto God, a life lived unto God. William Ames, who was a Puritan, wrote a book called The Mirror of Theology, which was very influential in his time. And he defined theology as the doctrine or teaching of living to God. So Leviticus 24 reminded Israel of God's gracious uh, invitation to his people to live before his presence, to receive the privilege of divine fellowship with him. So while it is creepy for the tech companies of Silicon Valley to, to know so much about our lives, life in God's presence is a blessing. It is a comfort. Life in God and unto God brings sweet communion with him and the intimacy of his fellowship. So, so here's the sermon summary for this morning. Life in God's presence requires enjoyment of God and submission to God. So life in God's presence requires enjoyment of God and submission to God. And so as we go through Leviticus, we'll uncover that principle from the text. So first and foremost this morning, I want to show us from Leviticus 24 that we bask in the light of God's presence. We bask in the light of God's presence. We see this in verse one through four. So if you remember, as we've talked about the tabernacle quite a bit throughout this series on Leviticus, you'll remember that the, the tabernacle was in the center of Israel's camp. And the tabernacle was the home of God. It was the center of Israel's worship. And God dwelt with his people, his presence dwelling most thickly in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. And of course, only the priests were allowed to enter into the tent itself. And the tent of meeting, if you remember, had two sections. There was the outer section, which was the holy place. And then covered by the veil, there was a second section called the most holy place, also known as the holy of holies. And in the most holy place, that's where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. And you remember how we talked about this is where God's presence dwelt thickest 
No one was allowed to go in there but the high priest, and he only went once a year on the Day of Atonement to cleanse it and to make atonement for the people's sins. But the holy place, kind of the outer part of the tent, the priests regularly went in and out to complete their daily work of being a priest. So the rest of Israel wasn't allowed to go in, but the priests made regular trips in and out each day to do their job as priests of Israel. So in the holy place, that outer section of the tent, there were three items. There was the golden lampstand, there was the table for the bread of the presence, and there was an altar of incense. So those were the three things, the golden lampstand, the table for the bread of the presence, and the altar of incense. So Leviticus 24 discusses two of those items and what the priests were to be able to to, to do in maintaining them. They discuss both the the lampstand and the bread. So those are the two things we'll talk about this morning as we look at Leviticus 24. Now, as we look at 24, remember Leviticus 24 is coming right off of chapter 23. And if you were here last week, we talked about the feasts of Israel, these annual events on Israel's calendar. But but as we see it transition to 24, we see that that God also wants the priest to remember that there are some, some daily and weekly responsibilities that they have within the tent of meeting. One of those is maintaining the oil in the lamp, the golden lamp stand, and making sure bread is upon the table as it should be. So let's talk about the golden lamp stand here as we look at verse one through four. What is it? Well, the golden lamp stand re- resembled a, a tree with a center tree-like stalk with, with six sprouting branches coming off of the side, totaling in seven different lights on this golden lampstand. So the Hebrew word for this, you probably heard it before, is menorah. It's a menorah. So part of the job of the priest was to go into the holy place and ensure that the lamp, the golden lampstand, had enough fuel to stay lit throughout the entirety of the night. So verse 2, look at what, what it says in verse 24. Command the people of Israel to bring pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. So Israel brought the oil to the tabernacle. They supplied it. And then Aaron was to make sure that the lampstand was lit properly and had fuel to, to light every night. So every evening, there was always a little glow, a light of the lampstand that radiated this glow from within the tent of meeting. You see, the tabernacle, as we talked about before, is is sort of like a microcosm of the universe, of the cosmos. Everything in the tabernacle possessed meaning and symbolism. So the golden lampstand, as you might imagine, is no different. So what is being represented by this golden lampstand? Well, the lamp's light represented the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. He is the God who does not sleep, whose light is always on. He is the God who illuminates our darkened world with the light of his glorious grace and his presence. And so the lampstand reminded Israel that even at night, God dwelt with them. His presence was always there, always watching, always dwelling amongst his people. So so one of the cool new gadgets that are out nowadays are these things called smart light bulbs. And yes, even our light bulbs are smart nowadays. 
So these smart light bulbs are pretty neat. We, we picked some up a few years ago for Christmas. And if you've been to our house, you've probably seen them in action. But what they do is they connect to your Wi-Fi network and you can control them remotely or dim them. Uh, even if you're not at home with a tap of the app or you can schedule them to automate all sorts of things. And, and there's even this mode called vacation mode on the lights for these smart lights where you can have them randomly and automatically turn off and on in the evening, simulating that someone is living at home as an attempt to deter and to scare away thieves. So God doesn't need those lights, does he? He he doesn't need someone pretending that he's there. No, he is the God who is there. He is always home. He is always awake. He is always attentive and watching over his people. You see, for the nation of Israel, the the menorah that that became a a, a symbol of God's presence and leadership over the nation. Remember, God guided his people in the wilderness by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So by Jesus' day, the Feast of Booths, which if you remember, we talked about the celebration last week. And this was a celebration that happened every year in which the nation of Israel pretty much gathered together for a a nationwide camping trip as they all go and sit in booths and kind of reimagine and recapture the the wilderness journey of Israel as they dwelt in little booths, little tents, little tabernacles. And so this was a big major festival in Israel. And by Jesus's day, they had also added the use of a large menorah to their celebrations. So part of the week-long festivities, at some point, the menorah would lead the people in a parade throughout Jerusalem. So someone would hold this this menorah, and they would walk through Jerusalem with it lit, of course, remembering and and hearkening back to just how Israel followed the light of, of, of the Lord, of the fire by night in the wilderness. So it's interesting, we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus was celebrating this festival In John chapter 7 through 8, he was in Jerusalem partaking of these celebrations as a a good Bible-believing, obedient Jewish person. And so Jesus spoke to the crowd while all these events were going on. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those words of Jesus are powerful, but particularly when you realize that they're happening during the Feast of Booths. Because as soon as Jesus said them, the Pharisees go on to rebuke Jesus because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying and claiming about himself. Jesus claimed that that he is the light of God's presence that guides us, his people, into life. So while the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy, they, they tragically missed the wonderful truth of what was taking place, that this same God who led Israel by fire at night, now stood before them incarnate in the flesh, that the light of God's presence had come most fully, most visibly, most powerfully, most directly through the light of the world, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So in Christ, in Jesus, comes the light of God's presence into our lives. Jesus has come to dwell with us. And we bask in the light of his presence. You know, our sin blinds us. 
It corrupts us. It enslaves us. But God not only sends Jesus to shine the light of his glory upon us, but God also gives us spiritual sight so that we can see. So as John instructs us in his epistles, he says, we, we walk in the light as he, being Jesus, is in the light. And so as we come to trust in Jesus as our Savior, we, we step into the marvelous light of God's presence. So we bask in the warmth of Christ's love as he illuminates our darkened hearts with the truth of the gospel. So we live in the presence of God. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we're so glad that you are here and you are always welcome, but, but this is God's invitation to you this morning. That Jesus is the light of the world. And he is inviting you to, to bask in the glory of his presence. And as we step into the light of God, yes, it is a little uncomfortable and a little unnerving because as we step into the glorious light of Christ, our sin is exposed. But Jesus also washes us and he makes us clean. By his blood, Christ cleanses us from our sin. So today, let me urge you to turn from your sins, to repent of them, and to trust in faith the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, so that you might bask in the presence of the Lord's grace. Don't continue stumbling in the darkness when God has offered you the light of his only begotten Son. You know, when I was in, in college, I finally convinced this beautiful redheaded girl to go on a date with me. It took a while, as you might imagine. Persistence is a, a virtue, isn't it? So, so we finally convinced her to go on a date, and I wanted to make the most of this opportunity of taking this beautiful girl that I've been trying to convince to go on a date with me for, for many months. It was finally happening. So, of course, I assembled a team of friends to help me prepare a memor uh, uh, an evening to remember, one that she would not forget. And so something that would sweep her off her feet and ensure future dates. And so I planned and planned and planned, and we worked all, together all day to figure out the perfect date, the perfect evening. And so we decided, I came up with, we're going to do a dinner at sunset overlooking a lake in North Charleston. And so that was the plan. And we we're going to, of course, surprise her. We we're going to tell her any of this. So we just kind of sweep her off her feet that way. And so we get to the lake, and I've got everything that we need. And so we get to the lake, we park in the parking lot, and it's about a quarter-mile walk through the woods on a narrow trail to get kind of to the shore of the lake and a perfect view of watching the sun go down behind the trees. And I had everything. I had a, a basket full of food. I had a blanket. I even had a battery-powered stereo for music playing Jack Johnson that we could watch to listen to. I mean, it was, it was great. But I forgot one very important item. And that was a flashlight, a flashlight. So after dinner, and this was before smartphones where you could pull out your phone and have a light on it, right? So we didn't have smartphones yet. That's how old I'm getting now. Uh, but, but, but we didn't have smartphones. So the night was wonderful. We ate, we, we talked, it was wonderful. And then we realized that the sun was going down rather fast. This was during the winter time. And the sun was going down quickly and it was getting dark and I did not have a flashlight. <laughs> so we, thankfully, we, we, we began to stumble and trip through the blackness of night into the woods, trying to return to the car. 
And thankfully, we made it back to the car, and the date didn't end in a complete and utter disaster. After all, I did end up marrying this lady. (laughs) But for a few moments, I remember walking on that dark path in these unknown woods, and I knew the anxiety and the frustration of walking without sight in a dangerous path. And you may feel this morning, you're not in Christ. You may feel that you are stumbling in life right now, unsure of where you are going, who you are living for, why bother living, what you believe. You might not know the answer to any of those sorts of questions. And I can testify that that stumbling in the darkness can be frightening and terrifying. But God, by his grace, has provided you with a light in the darkness. So let me invite you to come by faith into the presence of the light of the world who stands ready to illuminate your life and to forgive you and to save you and to bring you into his presence. Secondly, this morning, we see that we fellowship in the meal of communion. We fellowship in the meal of communion. So remember the tabernacle, the tent and meeting within the holy place, there was the golden lampstand. But across from the golden lampstand was the bread of the presence that was placed upon a golden table. And on the bread of presence, there sat 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the whole people of God, the whole nation before the presence of their God. So across from the golden lampstand, the bread stayed bright and illuminated as the light from the lampstand shone onto the bread. So the priests were commanded, as we see here in Leviticus 24, they were were commanded to replace the bread with new loaves on the Sabbath. So every week on the Sabbath, the priests were to come in and replace the new loaves and to take the old loaves and to consume them within the tabernacle complex. So the bread not only represented Israel before the presence of their God, but the, the priestly eating of the loaves was a picture of the fellowship Israel had with their Lord. The two loaves represented, I mean, the 12 loaves, excuse me, represented the the invitation of all of God's people to fellowship and enjoy the presence of the Lord. Meals with one another are a, a time of intimacy, of acceptance, of fellowship. And this is true in our day, but it was, it was especially true in the ancient world. You didn't eat with your enemies back then. So to be invited to come and eat was a big deal. And the same is true for for us as we open up our tables to one another. That when you open up your table to other people, you open yourselves up to friendship and companionship. You see, there is extraordinary grace to be found in ordinary meals with one another. After all, it was in eating and drinking that the Son of Man came. Jesus' ministry often took the form of table hospitality. He often ate, Jesus did, with, with people that we would consider a bit unsavory, the taboo, the looked down upon. And it was with these unlikely guests that Jesus modeled his ministry of discipleship that often took place around a table. And this is something at Redemption Church that we have strived to to cultivate a a ministry, a culture of of eating with one another as a congregation. 
If you're here for over a month and no one has asked you to eat, then something's terribly wrong. <laughs> That's unusual because we love to eat and fellowship with one another. And we want to do this as a congregation, not merely for nourishment, but admonishment, growing together in spiritual conversations and enjoying the joy of communion together before our God. That it's in our conversations together, particularly over meals that, that we mature in Christ and that we turn our discussions to the things of God. That what God is teaching us, what God is showing about our lives that need to be changed and transformed. These are formative times for us as God's people ministering to one another. So let me encourage you to take up this ministry of the table and to use the table as an opportunity for ministry. Disciple your children around your table. Encourage other believers around your table. Evangelize the lost around your table. All of this can happen and more if we would but be intentional with the gospel with our meals and eat with one another. Break bread together as a ministry to one another and learn to cultivate fruitful conversations about Christ during those times. But, but the fellowship that we have with one another as the body of Christ, and praise be the Lord for the sweet gift that is, but it is a byproduct of the fellowship that we have with God. Fellowship with God comes first, and because we are united to God and have communion and fellowship with Him, then we have fellowship with one another. So we enjoy the, the sweetness of Christian fellowship because God was first hospitable to you and to I. Because in Jesus, God invites us to eat with him. He invites us, he brings us into his presence and he shares his food with us. He shares his table with sinners. You see, life in God's presence means that we can enjoy him. As we read from the Psalms this morning, it is in the presence of God that there is fullness of joy. So it is in Christ that we live and we move and we have our being, that Jesus is the source of every happiness in the believer's heart. He is the fulfillment of our every heart's desire as we focus our attention on Jesus. Because in the presence of God, there are delights of eternal pleasures that await us. And all of this, God extends to us because he invites us into his presence through Jesus Christ. So the image of bread is a very powerful one in the Old Testament and in the New. It captivated Israel's mind, captivates our minds today. They, of course, Israel, when they thought about bread, they looked back at the flight out of Egypt and they thought about the feast of the unleavened bread. They thought about the bread of the presence, as we see here in Leviticus 24. These loaves that sat before the golden lampstand, representing God's people together and the fellowship that they had with God by his own gracious invitation. Israel also thought about the manna that came down from heaven, the bread from heaven that God used to sustain his people as they wandered into the wilderness. See, bread was such a powerful image for the nation of Israel. And I'm sure all of these images and more were coming to mind when Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never 
thirst. You see, Jesus is the true son of Israel. He is Israel, represented the culmination of God's mission for his people through the the blessing of the whole world. All of that is consummated in Jesus. And so Jesus is the bread on the table of presence that God invites us to eat of. This is God's gracious invitation to come and to consume the the bread of Christ. And as we consume Christ in faith, we find our soul is satisfied. We find our spiritual hunger filled. So Jesus is the bread, the bread that God has provided for you this morning. And the invitation, of course, for those who don't know Christ, but but also for those of us who do, is to, to come and eat to come and find our souls satisfied, our spiritual hunger filled as we consume the good food of Jesus. Jesus is the bread that he has provided. And if you eat of him, you will never die, but you will have eternal life. God, by his gracious initiative, invites you, invites me to his table to dine with him. So, so Christian, let me ask you this morning, are you feasting off of Christ? Are you consuming him every day? Do you commune with God as you read his word, as you fellowship with him in prayer? Do you long to know the Lord more intimately, to see him more clearly, to experience him more fully? Brothers and sisters, the table is set for you. It is ready for your feasting. God has opened up the way through Christ so that each day you can know him and find your joy in him. Now, I've heard a lot of Christians grumble over the years about their lack of intimacy with the Lord. They complain complain that sometimes God just feels distant or he feels far away. But I always ask, are, are you spending time with the Lord every day? Are you reading his word? Are you meditating upon it? Are you communing with him in prayer? And the answer is is usually no, no. Then is it surprising that God seems distant to you? Because God, by his grace, he has set a table for you in his presence, and yet you refuse to recline at that table with him and eat the bread that God has provided you. Communion with God, friends, is not just some future reality in heaven that you look forward to, but it is the saint's privilege here and now in the presence. God invites us to fellowship with him, to dine with him, to eat and feast off of his word. So Christian, each day, sit and eat with your God. Share the table before him. Feast on his word as you read it. Dialogue and converse with him in prayer. Experience the joyous intimacy with God that he has designed you for and that he has saved you to. Thirdly, we submit in the judgment of the king. We submit in the judgment of the king. So life in God's presence, as we've talked about, brings the delights of joy, of communion with God as we bask in his glory, as we have fellowship with him. But it also means that as we live in God's presence, that we submit to the rule of God as our king 
and as our judge, as our Lord. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. And so for those who have been saved by Christ, we now live unto Christ, unto his kingdom. And so we joyously submit ourselves to his judgment. As Israel is living in the presence of their God as God's people, they are reminded of God's judgment as their king in verse 10 through 12. And this law here comes with a situation. There was a man who entered a brawl, some sort of fight with another man. We're not sure the occasion, but the fight isn't what's important. What happened in the fight is what's important because this man engaged in this sort of skirmish, ended up blaspheming the Lord. And this was more than just some sort of misuse of the Lord's name, but this was some sort of curse against God or directed towards God. And so this man's blasphemy was public and it was a serious offense. And so the the nation arrested this man, they put him into custody and look at what they did they awaited the Lord's decision. Look at verse 12. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. God was the judge and they were waiting on his judgment, his sentence on this man. Remember, Israel's context is just very different than our own. Israel was a theocracy. So the offense of blasphemy was not just a religious sin, but this was a political sin. Blasphemy was treason in Israel because God was their government. God was their king. God was their judge. So in response to this man's public blasphemy, Israel awaited to hear the sentencing of their king. What would God say would be the appropriate punishment for this man's sin? And the Lord, in this case, decided to hand down the judgment of death. In Israel, the punishment for blasphemy, for treason, was death. So at this judge's, at the judge's command, as God's command, the community placed their hands, those who heard him, placed their hands upon his head as a way of placing the guilt incurred by the whole nation because of this man's blasphemy. They were placing that guilt onto this man, and at God's command, they stoned him. And the act of communal stoning com- communicated that this was the nation's responsibility to bring justice and to address blasphemy. That if they failed to address it, the community's apathy and negligence would bring God's wrath upon their own lives and upon the lives of the nation. So this isn't the first time in Leviticus that we've seen the penalty of death for those who blaspheme. We've seen it before. Remember, God struck down Nadab and Abihu as they offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord as an act of blasphemy, of defiling his name. So the fact that that God at times chose to bring the penalty of death upon individuals, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way, that can really disturb people. It really caused people to question, why would God do this? But the more I study the Bible, the more I learn about who God is, the The fact that God at times chose to bring that penalty doesn't really surprise me all that much. What surprises me most is not that God struck down some who did blaspheme, 
but that he withholds death from so many who do. You know, we live in a world that is filled with blasphemers, with mockers, with rebels of God. And and that's been some of us. Some of us in this room at one time have been blasphemers of God. You might be a blasphemer of God this morning, but yet God is gracious in delaying his judgment upon those who deserve it. As Paul would say in the book of Romans, God's kindness intends to lead to our repentance. By his mercy, God withholds often, so frequently, his judgment, showing forbearance in our sin. You see, what ought to astonish us this morning is not the few times God struck down a blasphemer, but the many times he has stayed his judgments over your life and mine. You see, the end of Leviticus 24, these final verses beginning in verse 17, serve to limit the extent of punishment for Israel's courts. This is often called the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. The punishment ought not to exceed the crime. That's what this law is really getting at. The punishment ought not to exceed the crime. So this law was designed and given by God to to curtail the tendency in society towards vengeance. Revenge in the ancient world wrecked havoc upon society. It was like the, the escalating prank wars of teenage boys. It just got out of hand. It would constantly get worse and escalate. Crime and punishment in the ancient world was a bloody game of one-upsmanship. So the lex talionis is given by God to limit the barbarism and to restrict punishment for crimes handed down by the appropriate judicial authorities. So as we look at this law here, you might remember that Jesus talks about this law. Because as you might have guessed, the Pharisees found a way to distort this law away from God's intention and design. Because the Pharisees and many in Israel by the time of Jesus used this law as justification for personal vendettas. And they possess this attitude of vindictiveness, of getting back at people for when they've been wrong. And as we see with this law, that's the exact opposite reason for why God gave the law to begin with. So when Jesus, who is not just the author of the law, but the right interpreter of it, arrives and he begins to, to stand on the mount and begin to teach his people on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he began to correct this distortion of this law and begin to lambast those who use this law as justification for personal vengeance. So at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached, this is Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see, the right of retaliation does not belong to us. The word says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So when wronged, we trust in the sovereignty of God as judgment is exercised according to the appropriate governing authorities. We don't take matters into our own hands. We submit to God's rule, we submit to God's judgment, and we show grace and forgiveness to others, especially to our enemies. As those who live in the presence of God, we submit ourselves to the judgment of King Jesus. 
We seek to obey his word. We strive after holiness and we rest in his judgment over our lives and the lives of others. Human courts have the responsibility of preserving justice in society and they certainly should do just that. But as we've often seen, even the the greatest judicial system in the history of the world often leaves justice inadequate, doesn't it? Human courts fail to exert justice as we long for. But we can take rest knowing that even though human courts may fail to punish and bring justice in certain offenses, we know that there is a God who will give an account and who will make all things right at the end of the age. So within the church today, we rest in God's judgment particularly when wronged by outsiders and people outside of the faith. Inside of the church, yeah, we discipline one another. We judge one another as Christ calls us to. After all, judgment begins in the household of God. So we hold each other accountable. We love one another. We rebuke and admonish one another when necessary. But in terms of our life in this fallen world, we trust in the judgment of Christ, who will reveal all things before his great white throne. And it is before his presence that all will be revealed, that all will be made known, and we can have confidence that he will judge with righteousness and justice because he's a good king. He's a good judge. So so do you sense that your life this morning is lived before God? Are you ready for the judgment that is to come? Have you taken refuge in Christ? Have you claimed Jesus's righteousness as your own? Have you received the Lord's invitation to dine at his table, to feast upon the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ? This morning, may we together bask in the light of the presence of God, that the Lord's eye sees all. You see, God knows more about you. He knows more about me than than Facebook or Google combined and more than they could ever know. We live before him. And as we think about what it means to be known in the presence of God, may we take comfort in the wonderful gospel promise that he accepts us by grace through Jesus Christ and that he invites us into his presence. So church, for those who have been saved and redeemed, made clean by Jesus, who now live our lives unto God as we come into his presence. May we enjoy him and may we submit to his glorious rule as our sovereign king. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your good word. And Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that by your great mercy, you have invited us to come into your presence. You have invited us to come and to feast upon Christ, who is the true food, who is the good bread, Father, may we find our nourishment and hope and satisfaction in him this morning. Lord, as we live before your presence, may we enjoy you. And Lord, may we submit to your word and to your law as your people. Father, I do pray, Lord, for those this morning who don't know Christ. And Father, I pray, Lord, that by your great mercy, Lord, that you would awaken their hearts. Lord, that you would give them spiritual sight to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that they might see their sin. And Lord, that they might fling themselves upon Christ, calling out for mercy and help. Father, we are grateful that you are a God who saves the lost. Lord, that you are a God who invites sinners to your table. 
And Father, we know that all of that is because of Jesus, because he has died in our place. Father, we praise Christ this morning. We lift him up and we worship him as our King and our Lord. And so, Father, as we prepare to come this morning and to feast with you at your table, eating the food and drink of Christ, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would celebrate and enjoy the sweet fellowship that we have in him and the fellowship we have with one another as your people. So, Father, may you glorify yourself in our lives as we come into your presence and as we live before you for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.